1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Institute Series on Ideas. We are pleased and honored to welcome today's guest, Paula Fredrickson, to talk about her newest book, When Christians Were Jews, The First Generation. Paula Fredrickson is the Aurelio Professor of Scripture Emerita at Boston University and since 2009, Distinguished Visiting Professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. She's published widely on the social and intellectual history of ancient Christianity and on pagan-Jewish-Christian relations in the Roman Empire. An award-winning scholar, Professor Fredrickson's books include Sin, The Early History of an Idea, and Paul, the Pagan's Apostle. Paula Fredrickson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's jump right in and, uh, and, and first tell us, why is it important to understand the origins of Christianity in the Jewish context in which it arose?
0: I think one of the most important reasons is that we're still living with the consequences of things that occurred in this neighborhood, Jerusalem, over 2,000 years ago. That's astonishing. I mean, we still are, in a sense, living out the social and um, religious consequences of things that happen. One of the things that impress historians is that history is what's called radically contingent. Things don't have to work out a particular way. They end up working out ways that you know the day before something happens you can't expect i think the experience we're all having now with the covid virus is proof of that six months ago nobody could have imagined that this is now our new reality and in that same way the first generation of jews who followed jesus could not have imagined you and me having this conversation in the year 2020 and What my book, I hope, helps people to do is imagine themselves back into the same situation that these first century people were in when they were living their lives without knowing what the future would be like.
1: Well, you're certainly right about it being impossible to predict anything. Right now, we know that from day to day and week to week. Uh, In in your book, you make the point that the first generation of Jesus followers, including Paul and all the apostles, that they didn't imagine themselves as anything other than traditionally practicing and observant Jews. They saw themselves as merely one sect. Well, not merely, I guess, as as a sect of Jews in a society that had many sects. Tell us about that.
0: Well, I think... um... I think uh several things are very much the same with Jewish populations. One is that every different distinct group of Jews thinks that their own version of Jewishness is the correct one, and everyone <laughs> else is either way too way too strict or way too lenient. So, uh, so the point I'm really making is that. Ancient Jews were no more on the same page in terms of practice and in terms of how they interpreted what they referred to as their ancestral customs Uh, than Jews in the 21st century are. There was incredible variety of practice and interpretation in the early Roman Empire among Jewish populations, even in this immediate neighborhood, just within Judea and the Galilee, there were different types of, uh, there were the Essenes, the Dead Sea Scroll community, there were uh, a group known as the Pharisees that had um, a connection with oral traditions of interpreting the written text, there were Sadducees uh, associated often with uh, the priests, the priestly aristocracy that had different traditions of interpretation, and uh, there were people called, referred to in Jewish texts as Amha Aretz, people who um, didn't have the same kind of Jewish education that the people who thought of themselves as experts. By the way, all the experts are yelling at each other, it, even if they're within the same, uh, what we would consider interpretive umbrella. Beit uh, Shammai and Beit Hillel had lively discussions. And then all the Jews in the diaspora weren't even familiar with the hebrew version of jewish texts they were reading and hearing jewish texts in greek which is a quite different language so and, and and then jews in babylonia were doing something else so it was a period of incredible energetic jewish variety just like today and the most intense fighting were with between jews between different groups of Jews. After all, when the Roman 10th Legion was outside the city of Jerusalem during the war started by Vespasian and Titus, um, the city was divided between three different groups that were fighting with each other. So this idea of Jews fighting with Jews is the least exotic thing about first century Jewishness because it's the least exotic thing about 21st century Jewishness too. (laughs)
1: Yes. But there is fighting and fighting. Uh, And when we look at uh, the Apostle Paul's writings, uh, it's understandable that uh, the history of Christian anti-Judaism or anti-Semitism is conventionally attributed to his hostility. He, He says terrible things about the law, the Torah, and... Nevertheless, he was following it himself and praising it elsewhere. How do you understand that?
0: Well, e- even more than that, he's telling his ex-pagan Gentiles, he's saying that they, they have to stop worshiping their own gods. They can worship only Paul's God, who is the God of Israel. Um, he's saying that they're filled with uh, the spirit, of that God or the spirit of that God's uh, Davidic son, the Messiah. Uh, And by being filled with spirit, they get to stop acting like pagans and start being able to quote, fulfill the law. And then he he'll list the uh, five commandments on the second table of the law as what his version of this messianic message will enable pagans to do. He's, he's basically, as a salesman of a certain type of Jewishness to Gentiles, he's saying, do I have a deal for you? Uh, be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus the Messiah. And he's saying this in Greek. He's not saying this in Aramaic. He says, get baptized, you'll get the Spirit, and the Spirit will enable you to act almost as well as Jews do. So he's, use, he's saying fulfilling the law is one of the benefits for pagans to join this very idiosyncratically Jewish
1: movement. I see. The, the narrative arc of your book begins at about the year 30 and ends with the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. Tell us Uh, a bit about the larger background of the Middle East and the ancient world at that time. What, what was taking place geopolitically during those decades? The
0: Roman empire was the big new power in the block. The Maccabees in the minus second century had allied themselves with Rome, which was at that point a republic allied themselves with Rome as a way to get some political and military breathing space between uh, Ptolemaic uh, Egypt and Seleucid Syria, which uh, you remember the Maccabees had a little quarrel with the um, the Syrian Greeks. And so Rome was an ally of um, the Hasmonean family who were the 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 Maccabee uh, family who had led the revolt against the Syrian Greeks, and in that transition between the minus second century and the f- first century, Rome went from being a republic to being an empire, and th- which meant that there was a political network that Herod's kingdom was part of Herod the Great who was king from -37 uh, to -4 was an a friend of the Romans and king of the Jews and he was a great architectural genius and he built temples to the god Augustus because Roman emperors were considered gods and he also built a temple to his own God in Jerusalem by enlarging and creating what I mean the kotel is part of his retaining wall um, that he built for enlarging the temple in in Jerusalem. So Rome introduced a kind of international culture to this neighborhood, so that even though the the spoken vernacular was Aramaic, and even though Jews had their own specific god, they were also dealing with an international political reality that everybody had to pretty much stay on the good side of,
1: and that was Rome. Okay, and the internal politics, you talked a little about the sectarian conflicts uh, within Jerusalem at the time is there anything else we need to understand about the internal politics of Israel under Roman occupation?
0: Well, some, um, some Jews thought that having a Herodian king was a terrible idea politically, and they didn't want to be ruled by a Herodian king. They wanted to be, uh, ruled in fact, a, a group of Jews after Herod's uh, death in minus four um, go to Rome and plead with the emperor Augustus to have it go back to the way the government was in the good old days before the Maccabean revolt and have ruled by a high priest and have a foreign governor be. The one who d- looks after the uh, the taxes that go to the distant imperial power, and uh, and not have any more, not have any more Herodian kings. There were other Jews who thought that uh, the best thing would be to have um, a king, but it should be uh, a Davidic king. It shouldn't be uh, a, a a priestly. Uh, King like the Maccabees had been, they were the Mac. The Hasmonians were a priestly family, and they combined the offices of high priest and king until Herod married into the family. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the Dead Sea Scroll community breaks away from the priesthood in Jerusalem. If you think the Gospels say terrible things about the high priest in Jerusalem you should you should hear what some of the dead sea scrolls say about the high priest in jerusalem so there's all of these fights are both religious and political at the same time unfortunately for the jews who were petitioning augustus in minus 4 augustus decided to honor herod the great's will and allowed herod's son archelaus to run this neighborhood and be the Herodian king and be the king in Judea. A different brother took over the north, the Galilee. And then there was a third brother who took over um, other areas. The kingdom was split split in three. And I don't know how much our listeners know about Herod's family life, but...
1: (laughs) That's a, that's a drama. <laughs> yeah.
0: Besides killing his, uh, a good deal of his in-laws, including uh, his Hasmonean bride, uh, Mariamne, he also uh, killed off his own, several of his own sons because he was afraid that they were plotting to take over. In other words, what he did is kill those of his sons who were most like him, intelligent, ambitious, and effective. They were Mm. killed. And so it was the B team sons who remained alive. So it was Archelaus who inherited Judea was really more like a B minus son. He made an absolute mess of ruling and it was complicated because the temple drew pilgrims from everywhere and was uh, a very contested over um, space and people had very strong opinions about uh, the right way to do things. And the Dead Sea Scroll people wouldn't even set foot in the temple except for the group that would step foot in the temple. I mean, everything you can imagine. Archelaus was so incompetent that Augustus finally fired him and Gave and went along with the suggestion of the group of Jews who had petitioned in minus four, and Augustus said, "Okay, from now on, Judea will be uh, ruled as a second grade province, and that means we'll have uh, a Roman governor uh, who live in Caesarea, because no Roman, because the God of Israel was the only God that was allowed to live in the city of Jerusalem. That's that fight had been clarified." In the war with uh, the Maccabees, but Romans had their own gods, and their gods lived in Caesarea. That was where um, there was a temple to uh, Augustus and a, to the to Roma, the personification of the deity of the empire, and um, it, it's like you know, Caesarea was like Tel Aviv compared to Jerusalem. And that's where any sensible Roman governor would want to live. So the Roman governor hired 3000 local Gentiles to be the quote Roman army in, and they lived in and stayed in Caesarea and the high priest took over governance of um, Judea and uh, obviously oversight of the temple and what immediately happened would, uh, will amaze and astonish you.
1: And what immediately happened?
0: Jews started fighting with each other over whether this was the right thing to do. And, um, a revolt in the year six was when this transition to, uh, what one group of Jews had asked for 10 years earlier, another revolt broke out and, um, which Rome then had to put down. And finally, things began to run more smoothly. The governor was in place in Caesarea, but there was, some Jews were politically and religiously alienated from the deal that was was made. And other Jews were just thrilled that there wasn't a Herodian king anymore that was doing the rulership. So it was a, a political situation where... It, Politics was keyed to religious convictions. I know that's a very hard thing for Israeli, uh, the modern (laughs) Israeli audience to understand or even contemplate, or an American audience, for that matter. Imagine having religion be a determining factor in politics. Imagine. imagine. And so everybody was sort of more or less fighting, quarreling with each other a a lot. And at the same time, there was a lot of um, a sense of prophecy. There were, there were Josephus tells us about these people in his history, uh, Antiquities of the Jews, and he also mentions some of it in his History of the War, uh, the war under Vespasian and Titus, where there were, there were people who were working signs and wonders and gathering large crowds, there were people who um, were trying to organize uh, what looked like a more standard uh, revolt against, the, against Rome, which frankly wasn't a good idea because Rome was very powerful uh, militarily and didn't like revolutions very much and tended to make examples of people who led revolts uh, by crucifying them as a public service announcement. As a way of telling everybody who survived the revolt, don't even think of doing this again. So there were there was that type of tension uh, in the country, and also at the same time, people were still agreeing to get along because during the pilgrimage holidays, everybody still came into Jerusalem and had to get along for as long as they were all in the city together. And yet, Josephus says the pilgrimage holidays were always the time when sedition, you know, resistance was Mm -hmm. most likely to break out. And if you think about it, um, the temple ran in the black because of it was such a draw, especially for the pilgrimage holidays. So you'd have Jews coming from Jews who only they were, they, We have a synagogue inscription for what I think of as a first century version of American Jews who would come on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where this inscription is in Greek and it's for Greek speakers who are on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to Daven in the synagogue uh, in Greek and hear the version of the Bible, they're familiar with while they're at pilgrimage doing pilgrimage um, in Jerusalem. So there are, and there, then there are people who are complaining that the priest should be doing it this way and not that way. And in other words, it was, it was very, very similar to the situation we're living with now.
1: Yeah, but not in every respect.
0: But not in right. every respect.
1: Oh. Right. Uh, and, and you mentioned just now that the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus as historical documents that you used in your research— And, as well, a very close reading of the Bible, um, particularly the New Testament. So can you explain the difference between the perspectives of the Gospel of John with the other Gospels? Well,
0: the New Testament has four Gospels. We know of 38 different Gospels. The four Gospels that are in the New Testament rests on a decision made in the 4th century. So it is a 4th century anthology selected from earlier documents. The Gospels themselves are written after the destruction of the temple. So all the Gospels are writing stories about Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified when Pontius Pilate was the governor and when Caiaphas was the high priest, which means sometime between 26 and, and 36, and for different reasons, scholars pick 30 as, as the probable year of Jesus' execution. Um, so all of the Gospels are telling a story about a figure who lived before the destruction of the temple. In the. Right period after the temple had been destroyed. So a lot of the plot devices in the gospels are about explaining why the temple is destroyed. And the I think the all four gospel writers were probably Jews because who else is going to care this much about why the Jerusalem temple is destroyed? And their explanation for why jerusalem why god allowed jerusalem to be destroyed by the romans is because the priests who are the group most associated with the temple the priests themselves rejected jesus as a religious authority now if you think realistically jesus himself is not a kohen right he's not he's a he's a lay person he's not and you get different uh, genealogies that tie him into um, the family of David, which is one of the jo- job descriptions. If you're going to be a Messiah, you have to have Davidic lineage um, unless you have different qualifications. And we have other Messianic figures who are qualified differently. Anyway, um, a lot, so the, the gospel writers are looking backwards at the destruction of the temple, and they're reconfiguring whatever traditions they might have access to that would have developed from the year 30 through the prism of events in the year 70. And the Gospels are being written in Greek, which is a language Jesus himself did not function in. And they're using the Septuagint, which is the Jewish translation of Jewish scriptures into Greek, which is a biblical tradition that Jesus himself wouldn't have been familiar with. And with that different combination of factors, they're telling a different story that that explains how the main character is the Messiah and why the temple is no more.
1: Now Paul is different from the Gospels. He's the only New Testament author who lived before the destruction of the Temple and Jerusalem.
0: That's right, and that makes. And why is that time. important? That's incredibly important because he doesn't know that the Temple is going to be destroyed. One of the biggest arguments that people in my line of work have with each other is whether Jesus himself predicted the destruction of the temple. In the Gospels, he does, but guess what? The Gospel writers knew that the temple had been destroyed. Paul never could have imagined a world without the temple, and Jesus of Nazareth, I don't think, did either, because if, if Jesus had prophesied that the temple was going to be destroyed, Paul didn't know anything about it because he never says anything about the prophecy. And he gives a long list in many of these letters to these, um, these ex-pagan Greek speakers whom he's trying to Judaize. He's saying, don't worship Greek gods anymore. Only worship my God and do it my way, which is um, uh, through prayer and not through, you know, you can't don't sacrifice and, Certainly, don't eat in a temple and don't do a lot of other things. Um, it sounds like the Greeks had toga parties and a lot more fun than uh, the way Paul <laughs> is imagining Jewish communities acting. And um, what that means is that Paul gives us access to how the first generation of what we think of as Christianity is actually thinking about what's, what's going to happen and what Jesus actually did teach. And where Paul agrees with some of the other traditions in the later Gospels is that Paul is predicting that the kingdom of God is going to happen in his, Paul's own lifetime. And it's, the way he talks about it is by saying that Jesus has been raised from the dead and it's only, it's only a Jewish religious tradition to think of somebody being raised from the dead and coming back down from heaven as a messianic military figure, leading squads of angels, with God's heavenly trumpet sounding, and the dead rising, and the living being transformed. And what happens to the the human body, the body that like take, for example, the one I'm sitting in right now, the one you gave breakfast to this morning, uh, you're sitting in that body. What's going to happen is that flesh says, Paul is going to turn into pneuma, which is the word we translate as spirit, but don't think of immaterial spirit. What he's, uh, it's material spirit. It's It's the same kind of stuff that stars are made of. Everybody's body is going to become a star body. Flesh will be turned into spirit, he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is going to happen when Jesus comes back to have this Davidic final battle. Are you wondering whom the Messiah fights when he comes back? Absolutely. I'm going to tell you. Okay. It's not the Romans. It's the gods. When Jesus comes back, says Paul, he's going to overthrow all of the cosmic powers, which are literally, remember, it's a geocentric universe in the first century, and there were rings of astral powers, and some of them are identified with gods. Jupiter, Saturn, Venus... Mercury, mm-hmm. we still call them by their God names. and those are the those are the cosmic entities that the Davidic Messiah will defeat. And some some of Paul's letters, we only have seven authentic letters from Paul. Um, the other letters attributed to him are written by people who were writing to appropriate his authority, but they say, Different things than the seven core letters of Paul say. Paul expects to be alive to see this happen, and he's telling his ex-Pagan Gentiles that if they get with the program and stop worshiping idols, and stop sacrificing to their own gods, and stop having toga parties, and um, stop having recreational sex, and stop you know eating meat sacrificed to idols, unless. Or, or you can eat whatever is served to you. But if somebody who's a part of the community is sitting next to you and says, you know, I think that meat actually comes from the temple of Jupiter, then don't eat it. He says, because of community coherence. He says he's not worried about, he's not worried about Gentiles keeping kosher. In other words, right. What you would be, it's, you know, it's, Kashrut is not a Gentile problem. It's a Jewish issue and Jews are fighting over. It's amazing. They were fighting over what constituted Kashrut. That's another story.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> never heard of that. Never heard of that yeah.
0: uh, And which was occasionally politically inflected too. Imagine anyway. Um, so Paul is predicting this messianic kingdom, which coheres with the message that, Jesus of Nazareth, according to the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke, is proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, which means the, the the resurrection of the dead is going to occur. And this is why this group of Messianic Jews aren't thinking of themselves as, quote, Christians. The word hadn't occurred to them, and the concept hadn't occurred to them, they were just talking to fellow Jews about the, the second coming of the Messiah. And they end up speaking to pagans by accident because, do you want me to tell you why? Uh, okay. okay, I don't want to guess. Well, yeah. it's, well you, I mean, they would have bumped into pagans in the cities of the diaspora. I mean, that's where the pagans are, right? And the diaspora, in terms of pagans, both divine and human, begins at Caesarea. So once right. this, after Jesus' death and some of his followers' conviction that he had been raised from the dead and was then going to come back to establish God's kingdom, they— hang around Jerusalem for a while waiting for Jesus to come back. And when it doesn't happen, they figure that what they have to do is start telling Israel of the diaspora that the Messiah is coming. And they begin to fan out to the cities of the Mediterranean diaspora, speaking in Greek and going to, naturally, synagogues. And it's in the synagogues, that there are also pagans. Diaspora synagogues had interested pagans. These pagans were not there to study for conversion, although some might have wanted to convert to Judaism. What they are is both and, which is a normal type of pagan religious mentality, both their own gods and the God of the Jews, who was known to be a powerful God also, And um, we know that the pagans were part of the pro part of a a diaspora synagogue because, and this will shock and amaze you. And I hope your listeners will be shocked and amazed as well. What would happen in the diaspora is that synagogues would have fundraising campaigns and anybody (laughs) who had any connection with the synagogue would be asked to contribute to the fundraiser. And if somebody contributed to the funds raised for the synagogue, they would be given a lovely donor plaque, which is a good thing for people like me because it would be in stone inscribed, which me, or it would be in mosaic on a floor, which means we have inscriptions of people that we know from other inscriptions are active pagans. One of Paul's near contemporaries, a lady named um, Julia, builds the entire. She builds the synagogue. She she pays for the whole building. Julia's um, of Acmonia, is her day job is she's a priestess in the imperial cult. She's a priestess to the god. Augustus, but she also builds a synagogue for which she gets, wait for it, a lovely donor plaque. And when, <laughs> when the shul is, is rebuilt later on by two Jews, they mentioned that the original building was built by, by this woman whom we know from these other inscriptions is from an aristocratic pagan family. She also liked to go to shul. That's that's and she, and she had and she had deep pockets, which means yeah. that Jews in the diaspora didn't have a problem with pagans being pagans and even encouraged them um, to contribute to the fun drive for the synagogue. And so when but this is something that Jews coming out of um Judea and the Galilee were unfamiliar with because they hadn't been in the diaspora yet. And right. so when they start proclaiming this news about a Messiah who's coming back and they're able to do, they, they cast out demons and they're making, they're saying, this is what the You think that's what that biblical text means. I'll tell you what it really means. And, and so on. They attract not only some of the Jews in the community, they also attract some of the pagans. And what they say to these pagans is something that the pagans never heard from the synagogue. These Christ-following Jews, say to these pagans, okay, you can also join our community, but you have to stop worshiping your own gods. And some of these pagans said, okay. And that's the group of pagans who represent the audience for Paul's letters. They're pagans who are ex-pagans. What this movement is doing is radically Judaizing a pagan population that is that's in the penumbra of these diaspora synagogues, they're already familiar with the Bible in Greek, or else saying somebody is a Christos, which is how you say Meshiach in Greek, it wouldn't mean anything to them unless they right. had heard Bible stories. And so they they sign up as well. So the, the fact that this messianic Jewish movement tipped over to a Gentile population. Is something that happened by accident, but
1: now, now Paul was uh, expecting uh, Jesus to return and the end times to come in his lifetime, mm-hmm. and so did those who heard him and and other the other followers of of Jesus. Then, when that didn't happen, when that prediction prophecy failed or at least was delayed, how was it explained in the first century?
0: What you do is have, um, well, we have an interesting comparison. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, which I think is written shortly, say within five years of the destruction of the temple. So if the temple's down in 70, let's say Mark is writing in 75. Mark's whole gospel plot is leading Jesus to Jerusalem so that Jesus can deliver his prophecy that the temple is going to be destroyed. And then the narrative characters in Mark th- chapter 13 say, when is all this stuff going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And Mark's Jesus says, oh, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars and this and that. And the, and the good news has to be preached to nations, which means he's allowing for a time lag already. And then after that, And after the temple is destroyed, then you will see the Son of Man, which is Mark's way of referring to Jesus, coming on clouds of glory to gather in the elect. So Mark has already explained why the prophecy didn't come true in Paul and Jesus' generation. The temple had to be destroyed first. Okay.
1: Gospel Luke, Luke. he was living after the temple had been destroyed. So, so he he's was he's literally waiting. It.
0: He's literally waiting for Jesus to come back himself. The right. God because now he's been his righteous generation has been given the sign that these things are about to happen. What Luke does is use Mark as a source. Luke isn't thinking in terms of Mark being a biblical text. It's just one of the sources he's drawing on. And he changes what Jesus says. Mark's Jesus' first line is, repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and you know, get ready, and this is the right. good news. What Luke does is have Jesus teach against the idea that the kingdom of God is going to come soon. He, he changes what Mark's Jesus says. And also Luke writes a two-volume work, He's also the author of the Acts of the Apostles, which is the right. Adventures of the Apostles. It's the road trip movie part of um what starts <laughs> out as the as the God. But in Paul's own generation and in the generation of Jesus's first followers, the fact that these pagans were stopping worshiping their own gods and making an exclusive commitment to the God of Israel without circumcising without, converting to Judaism, but they were they were worshiping only the God of Israel. If you think of the prophecies in the book of Isaiah, that's mm-hmm. another one of the things that's going to happen when the kingdom of God occurs. You, the pagan nations are going to smash their idols and turn and worship the God of Israel. So they were being right. reinforced by the success among pagans, that they were right about what time it was on God's clock. And what you get is um, there are currently, as you and I are talking, millions and millions of Christians who are convinced that right now is just before the kingdom of God is going to happen. It's a prophecy that is continuously disconfirmed and never discredited because the prophecy can always be made to fit whatever the current circumstances are that are occurring. If you, if you hit COVID and Jesus on Google, you'll, you'll get all the prophecies lining up, explaining how this is proof that we're living in the, uh, in the period of the footsteps of the Messiah. Right. Right. And Christians aren't the only ones who are thinking that way.
1: You're you're very right on that point. Yes. Many many pages of your book surprised me and I learned a lot and one thing I was really astonished to read was that Paul himself never claimed Jesus as a god that that only happened hundreds of years later in the 4th and 5th centuries. How did that come about? Um that's that's a very
0: interesting question and a very interesting story he has and it's disguised in english versions translations of the bible um and there's a chapter in one of paul's authentic letters philippians and in chapter two it says that though he he meaning uh, jesus was in the form of and then it's capital g god in the form of god he didn't uh, think he should be equal to God, and so he voluntarily uh, took on the form of a slave, meaning uh, having a fleshly body, and uh, then he uh, was crucified, and then God exalted him, and then the implication is he's going to come back because, and this is really cool, the text says, knees above the earth and upon the earth and below the earth will all kneel to the God of Israel because of Jesus coming back. The form, what the Greek actually says, and this is why I encourage all of our listeners to rush out and start learning Greek as quickly as possible because (laughs) it's really cool. Um, What it says is he's in God form, which a God form it doesn't say in the form of god capital g in greek there are no capital letters in in ancient mm-hmm. greek he's in god form and then takes on slave form you already know what god form is it's a star body it's a body made of spirit that's this that's the type of body that gods have so that the the son of god of the the biggest Best God, which is the God of Israel, as far as Paul is concerned, has a a son who's in a God who's in God form, which means. But he does. He says specifically, he's an anthropos. He's a human being from heaven, who has a star body, and then takes on a slave body, a fleshly body, and then presumably gets the star body back when he ascends and he's going to come back and then we're all, we're all going to get star bodies. The other interesting thing is all of those knees, those are not human knees. They're celestial knees and terrestrial knees and subterranean knees, which is exactly a Roman military formula that calls on gods, a Roman military formula. It's in the historian Libby. Augustus is about to fight mm. somebody and he calls on Jupiter and all you gods, whether above the earth or upon the earth or below the earth. It's a, it's, it's a pagan formula. So wow. that's more proof that who's the Messiah going to fight. He's going to fight these gods. Guess who's going to win?
1: <laughs> Stay tuned for the next installment. <laughs> so uh, until until I and all our listeners run out to learn Greek uh, g- give us give us another example of the translation errors in the book you mentioned several of them that that gave rise to historical scriptural misunderstandings.
0: Um oh my goodness. Um Translation is, translations, it it, it isn't that people make mistakes deliberately. It's that one language can't be transparent upon
1: another language. For example. Absolutely right. Translation is always problematic. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So when the Jews in the minus second century were translating Isaiah, it might have been late in minus third century. I have no idea. But when they were translating Isaiah into Old Greek, and they came upon Isaiah seven fourteen, and it said, um, um, "An alma, a young girl, will conceive and bear a son." Uh, and she'll call him Emmanuel. And then the prophecy goes on about what's going to happen during this uh, gestational and early childhood period to um, uh, the king. Instead of picking the word nianus, which means young girl, you can hear that nia, like in Mm -hmm. natal, that, that we still have that prefix in English. Instead of using nianus for reasons that, confound everybody they use the word parthenos as in parthenon mm-hmm. which probably meant in that period maiden which also in english means a young girl but it also means a virgin and of course in theory any maiden is a virgin young girls are not yes. sexually active and uh, but by the time Matthew and Luke, these gospel writers are generating Davidic lineages uh, for Jesus, they end up fastening also on Isaiah seven fourteen, And that's how Jesus's mom becomes a virgin. It's right. possible only in Greek because the, the, uh, there was a there's a perfectly good Hebrew word for virgin that Isaiah could have used uh, if he had wanted to, but he didn't. So, so that his mom was a virgin would have come as news to the historical Jesus. Not least of all because we also have the names of his brothers, and he had at least two sisters, uh, which Mark also says. But that's that's something that when it was done was not a mistranslation. But it's something that becomes an enormous theological idea as Christianity, as a Gentile and eventually anti-Jewish movement, develops in the Roman imperial period.
1: You also uh, focus the reader very much on, on historical anomalies in the text or conflicts, narrative conflicts in the text. Um, it, one of them, which you sort of alluded to earlier when you said the uh, after the crucifixion, the Jesus followers hung around Jerusalem, uh, it, you raised the question that is obvious after I read it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, it, the Romans executed people who were uh, rebellious, seditious, and they wanted their, and anyone else who had those ideas, to uh, take a warning. But they would also have uh, have killed or punished in some lesser way the followers of that rebel, that threatening rebel. Uh, why is it that the followers of Jesus were left uh, unmolested? Why is Jesus crucified and his followers are not?
0: Right. That is... That's the Agatha Christie question about the Gospels because we know from Josephus when prophets would gather crowds and Jesus is presented in the Gospels as a prophet and is also spoken of as a prophet. And here he is with a, a very enthusiastic following of pilgrims at Passover. And yet Pilate doesn't, Pilate doesn't arrest him with all of his followers. He doesn't, there isn't a general bloodbath. There's no punishment. And not only that, this community is so not worried about Pilate and so not worried about the priests that they feel perfectly free to stay, to move from the Galil and live in Jerusalem for the next 40 years that the city exists without being worried about the Romans or the priests. So that what that does is, if, if you're Agatha Christie and you're writing this murder mystery, why aren't they worried? And the answer is because they knew they were safe to live there. How, if their leader had just been crucified, could they possibly think they were safe? And the answer is that, and this is where I like the Gospel of John, um, in a way, prefer it to um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that when the Gospel of John, Jesus is in Jerusalem more often than he's in the Galilee. Jesus is goes back and forth to Jerusalem repeatedly. He's there for the high holidays. Uh, one time he, he goes for uh, Sukkot and stays through Hanukkah. Um, or whatever the equivalent was of Hanukkah, the pure, the rededication of the temple. He teaches in the Temple Mount a lot, and I, I, I don't think uh, the historical Jesus was saying things that the Gospel of John attributes to him, because nobody would have understood what he was talking about, and people must have understood the historical Jesus, or he wouldn't have ended up dead on a cross. He, because if he hadn't been popular, Pilate wouldn't have had any reason to execute him so i think the the answer is that because jesus had been back and forth to jerusalem so often at least 3 3 or 4 years worth uh in the gospel of john i think maybe it could have been even longer um pilate was also in jerusalem for the high holidays because they needed the extra crowd control so pilate and his 3000 troops would march up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And remember, people come into Jerusalem for Passover seven days before the holiday starts because they have to go through uh, the seven-day purification ritual before um, they can eat the Passover meal. And um, that's when Pilate's there, and that's when the high priest is responsible for what must have been something that makes Ben-Gurion Airport look like an a normally sane plow, or what Ben Gurion be like, <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: pre-COVID, pre-COVID,
0: yeah. right? Um, they knew that Jesus was talking about a kingdom of God coming that was not going to be formed by human armies, but was going to be established by God. So they knew that in any practical military way, Jesus Himself was harmless. He was talking about God establishing the kingdom. Now here mm-hmm. comes another. Since I really want to encourage you to learn Greek, comes um, <laughs> another interesting mistranslation. When Jesus and his disciples are um, they're ambushed in secret, and which is another attestation to his popularity. Because if he weren't popular, he could have just been arrested in public. Um, okay. Several of Jesus's followers are said to be, have swords. And uh, one of Jesus' disciples takes the sword and cuts the ear off of one of the people who's trying to arrest Jesus. Now, two things about that. First of all, pretend you're a movie director for a minute. How does somebody yeah. cut somebody's ear off with a sword?
1: With difficulty. A shorter knife is what you need. Right.
0: What, what I suggested in the book is, Very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) The the word in Greek for sword is, well, let's let's start with Latin because you really should do Latin as well. Um, And (laughs) the Greek term says um, uh, makira, but the Latin translates as gladius. So already in Latin, the word is being translated as sword which is one of its meanings. But if you look at the Jewish translation of Jewish scriptures, it's also the word in old Greek that Abraham uses during the Akedah. Uh So the first meaning of the word in Greek is a sacrificial knife, which is exactly what you need for precision cutting, Right, Abraham isn't about to behead Isaac. Right. He's going to cut his his carotid arteries. You don't do that with the sword, you do that with the knife. So, Jesus' followers would have had knives on them, but so would most of the male population because you had to take your own knife to the temple to sacrifice the lamb for the Passover meal, Uh which means that Jesus, and there's only one place in town. To get pick up your your uh, main course for Passover, right? It's at the temple, which means that Jesus Himself was not hostile to the temple, or they wouldn't have they wouldn't have been. That's the only place to get a Passover lamb, and we know from the Synoptic Gospels that they have a Passover meal together. So, in other words, Rome and the high priest knew that this was not a military revolution but they did know that jesus's popularity was based on people starting to proclaim that jesus was the messiah so jesus and jesus the high i picture in my movie caiaphas is talking to Pilate and saying look there are a lot of people who are saying that this is the passover where the kingdom of god is going to come They're getting. Remember, Josephus said it's during the high holidays that sedition is most likely to break out. We've got a very agitated population. Please don't call out the troops. I think if we just stop Jesus, it'll it'll fall apart and people will calm down. And Pilate says, "Huh. Well, I know perfectly well he's not armed. He's not dangerous. He's been saying this stuff." that God is going to start a kingdom. I'm not staying up late at night worrying about it, but I do need to make a public service announcement. So again, in the Gospel of John, it's, it's not a mob who goes out to bust Jesus. It's, it's Roman soldiers and officers of the priest's police who arrest Jesus at night And Jesus alone is on a cross. And the reason his followers aren't also crucified with him is because Pilate doesn't want to make a big mess during the high holiday, but he wants people to calm down. What's one of the best ways to disabuse a group of people that a figure is the Messiah? Get rid of him. get rid of him, crucify him. And that's, and that's why Jesus alone is crucified, but that's also why his followers feel completely secure and end up staying in the city because they, they know that Pilate and the priests aren't going to be breathing down their necks because they've been there for years. And also they know something Pilate and the priests don't know. They've seen Jesus raised from the dead so they know he's going to be coming back. Right. why stay oh, yes, in jerusalem right. why not go to why not go to the beach instead it's because <laughs> when the kingdom of god comes it doesn't come in tel aviv and it doesn't come in tiberias and it it doesn't come in lot. it comes in jerusalem so the fact that they resettle in jerusalem is another way that gives us a measure of time they're waiting for him to come back and as as paul quoting isaiah and Romans eleven twenty six says the redeemer will come from Zion, from right. Temple Mount, which means right. Right. which means he's not expecting the Temple Mount to not be there when Jesus comes back.
1: Your research uh, is is widely uh, honored and acclaimed both among scholars and the general public, and at least in part because. It's a very good read. <laughs> Thank but, you. but how has your work been received in religious Christian quarters? I, I, um, I
0: think the year that Mel Gibson's uh, movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, I yeah. spent more hours in church than uh, most Christians did because this was in America – Christians were upset about what this here is a movie that's very realistically and dramatically portrayed. And they they realized that a lot of people were saying it was anti-Semitic, and and American Christians don't want to be anti-Semites for the most part. So they there was I and people who do my, this sort of research we're going around talking to church groups or a lot of interfaith synagogue and church audiences put together. And we're talking about it. It's These stories are so familiar. to First of all, they're so unfamiliar to most Jews, which is a shame because so much of the documentation in the New Testament is, like Josephus and like the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the best Best historical material we have from the Second Temple period. These are Jewish texts, but Christians are so familiar with the stories that they don't see the anomalies. They don't. They don't see that um, that it doesn't make sense if if Jesus is crucified that his followers should feel like it was safe to live in Jerusalem because. Right. They think of the crucif- They think of the Jews as having crucified Jesus, right. not the Romans. So I mean, it's what's wonderful um, is for me is when people are surprised by something yeah. that they thought they they thought they knew by when they thought it was familiar, and it turns out that there's even more stuff there than they thought to begin with. That's the fun part of being a historian
1: it's- and being a teacher. It's actually the thrilling part of being a student as well. <laughs> yeah, you, you think you know the story, you know that narrative, and why didn't you see what's right in front of you? So yeah, you you do that extraordinarily well. Thank you. And And you've been very generous with your time today. But before you go, tell us what you're working on now.
0: I am working on cleaning up, um, all of the overdue articles I have because I had to start teaching my Hebrew university seminar on zoom this past semester, like everybody else had and teaching on zoom. And I'm sure learning on zoom takes up about 500% more of your time than, uh, teaching in real life does. So I am, um, I'm working on, Uh, an article on um, it's called the many gods of ancient Jewish monotheism. And it's about how ancient Jews thought about, knew that gods actually existed. They just thought their God was the biggest God and that the pagan gods were actually worshiping lower gods. The word in Greek for lower gods is Daimonia. And we, we translate that word as demons. And demons are familiar to us from you know European medieval mythology. Demons are like bacteria, or you know, they're just little guys. But a daimonion is is actually means a small god. It, the word means godling. And the Bible itself in uh, Psalm 95 5 in Greek says um and psalm And Psalm 96 in Hebrew, it says, the gods of the nations are idols. And when the translators translated that, the Jewish translators translated that, they said, the gods of the nations are daimonia, Uh which is uh, the difference between saying the gods of the nations are just chachkas or the (laughs) gods of the nations are powers. And yeah. so, that's, um, so I'm, I'm messing up people's idea of Jewish monotheism. That's, that's what I'm doing now. It's a lot of fun.
1: Oh, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get reactions to that. I'll look oh, forward you, oh, to reading think. it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <You'd think.
1: laughs> Paula, thank you so much for your important work and for being on the podcast today. Thank- and thanks as well to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Thank you very much for your wonderful, wonderful questions. (laughs) Take care and stay safe. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.